Well, man, thank you guys for uh, being here. It's great to see you. God is doing amazing uh, things. And I, you know, as crazy as it gets, uh, I love this time of year where we just get to celebrate so much of what God has already done um, on our behalf. And I, and I hope that we'll see you uh, this evening because it's always like, this is one of those evenings for me. This always like, this is a great kickoff. This is like our kickoff to, to all the things happening uh, this season and a great way to to celebrate in Thanksgiving uh, together. So today we're in week five of our series, Dear Church, and we're visiting church five out of the seven churches that Jesus addressed in the book of Revelation in chapter uh, two and three. And uh, we had this incredible blessing uh, over the summer. Uh, my wife Brenda and I, along with my girls, we got to, to be on sabbatical. And, um, and part of the thing that happened on sabbatical was this. And we got to do some things that we would not normally get the opportunity to do. And not just goes to some really cool places, which we'll show you pictures of in just a little bit. But one of the things that we just don't get the opportunity to really ever do is to go visit other churches. And as I was reading this week and thinking about the different churches that Jesus was addressing, I was thinking about the fact that we got to go celebrate with churches of all kinds of different sizes and ethnic backgrounds and things like that. We, we got to celebrate in, in churches with 20,000 people. You know, we, I mean, one of my daughters and I, we went to Hillsong in New York City, and then we were, you know, at different churches here in the States that are huge, but then we got to go to little churches with 25 people, you know, just in the hills in Peru. I mean, what, what an amazing, and, and every single one of these churches was amazing. And they were amazing. You know what made them all special? The people. The people. Because no matter where they're at or how big their church is or what's going on, the one common denominator is the people. The people of God coming together to, to celebrate and to love on what God is doing in, in their midst. And every single one of those churches has something very unique and very special about it. You know, for some places, you know, um, we were at Hillsong in New York and the, the music is just, you're just like, wow, like, whoa, you know, it just takes you back. Um, but then you're in a little place in Peru with 25 people and their hospitality, oh my gosh. Just amazing how they just loved on us and loved on us and loved on us. And I thought, it's just like this with these letters that Jesus writes to the church, that every church, still today, every church has something really awesome going for it. They've got great things that are happening. And then on the flip side, there's always something that's a challenge and there's always something that God would look at us and go, here's something that y'all need to work on, Right? And as good as we can sometimes think we are, there's always some things that we need to work on uh, if we're going to continue to be the church that God wants us to be to reach the culture that he's placed us in so that more and more people can come to a place where they trust Jesus as Lord. And that's our role, and it's great. And so uh, Jesus, as I was reading through this, it really is a case where Jesus, in these letters, and just like he wants to do today, he oftentimes comforts those people who are afflicted. He, he comes around, he just wraps his arm around the churches that are suffering persecution, that are in the midst of, of difficulty and despair, and he just wraps them up in his love. And then there's churches who need to be 
who are comfortable that need to be afflicted. And Jesus comes and he, well, what's the Bible say? He spurs them on towards love and good deed. And y'all know what a spur is, right? Sharp kick in the rear. And sometimes we need that. But whatever it is that we need, Jesus is always more than willing to offer it up. And so we're going to see that today as we look at uh, Revelation chapter 3 and jump into the church at Sardis. And it starts off like this. It says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now, Sardis was one of the oldest cities in this whole kingdom, in this whole area. Uh, it was founded, uh, what we do know is founded in about 1200 BC. It was the capital of the Lydian Empire, which uh, was most of Turkey uh, in, uh, in, in today's language. Um, it was 60 miles inland from Smyrna, about 35 miles south of where we were last week in Thyatira. And Sardis was a very, very wealthy city, probably one of the wealthiest cities in the world at the time. Um, I don't know if you, anybody in here ever heard the term as rich as Croesus? Anybody ever heard that? Okay, we got a couple people, a couple history lovers, right? As rich as Croesus. Well, Croesus was the king of the Lydian Empire. He was the king and lived in Sardis and, and at the time of its heyday, okay, the time when, when Sardis was just, was just exploding, and they were incredibly wealthy. The legend is that they, there's this river that runs right by um, Sardis, and it is the um, Pactolos River, and the, the history the legend is, is that King Midas, you guys remember King Midas, right? What did King Midas have? He had the golden touch, right? So everything he touched turns to gold. Now some of you are like, wow, that would be awesome, right? And there was a blessing to that and there was a curse to that. The blessing was everything he touched turned to gold, right? The curse was he couldn't touch anybody, even those he loved. And he recognized that while this was a blessing on one hand, it was a curse on the other. And he finally got tired of not being able to touch his, anybody or to, you know, to, to hold the people that he loved the most. And so he decides he's going to go get rid of this curse. And so he goes to the Pactolus River and he, it, legend has it, he washes his hands in the river. And by accident, he touches the bottom and, and he touches the sand and all of the sand in the Pactolus River becomes gold. One of the things we know about Sardis, it was the first place um, th that we know of where they minted gold and silver coins, which if you're going to have a river full of gold, you might as well do something with it, right? So they minted coins, and they were incredibly, incredibly wealthy because of all the gold. And, and for a long time, um, they were just pulling, it was kind of like, you know, the gold rush of, Southern Cal of Northern California, right? Well, this was happening here. Wealthy, wealthy place. Not only were they wealthy, they were famous. Um, how many of you ever read any of, or remember Aesop's fables? Remember Aesop's fables? Aesop was born in Sardis, okay? So just kind of putting some pieces together. That A lot of famous people came from Sardis because it was this amazing, amazing place. They were also very famous for their clothing, um, especially if I told you today to think of the typical attire of any Greek person, what would you think of? What do they wear? They wear a toga, right? This was the place where the toga came from, okay? Um, these were, uh, um, they were guys who um, originated um, certain fabric weavings and looms and things like that. This was one of their big things. That was what they were famous for. Today, um, 
today it's a status thing to kind of have like the newest technology, right? You, you got the newest iPhone or, or Samsung, I don't know, Galaxy thing or whatever that one is. And then you, or, or, you, or you have the, you know, you, you get a new car every couple of years because you want to keep up with the, the newest, best, latest and greatest thing like that. In this day and age, in this area, one of the things you do, did it as a status thing is whatever the new fashion or especially color was, you would wear it because that was a sign of your status. And Sardis was the main place. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about um, a dying wool and stuff like this. This was one of the places where that originated. And, and so they had, they were like, they, they had places where they experimented with different colors and all these different things, and they would create all this stuff, but they were also fashion designers. So think of the, as this is kind of like the, the fashion district of the area. And so if you were really, really into everything and you were, you were, you know, living the life back then, then in Sardis, you had all the latest, greatest clothing. So they were rich, they were famous for all these things, they had all these status symbols, and they were a proud city. Back in the time, in this time, one of the things, just like we have today, how, um, you know how like we have all of our favorite um, sports teams, right? And so like some of you are, you know, you're going to record the, the, uh, the Rams today, right? Maybe. Uh, although I think they play later today or something, but if you come tonight, you'll have to record it anyways. So they would have their favorite, and it wasn't just teams. One of the big things, they would have these games, right? They would have these seasonal games throughout the year, and then, you know, they had the Olympics every so often and th things like that, but, but they would have these games, and one of the biggest um, events was wrestling. Okay, you've heard of Greco-Roman, well, wrestling was a big deal back then, and they had these different kind of games. I was kind of thinking about the, the lumberjack games and all these things that these people do, and they carry logs, and they do crazy stuff. I don't know all the games. I know that wrestling, though, was a big one. And in Sardis, one of the great, that Sardis was known for its teams, and they would always whoop up on everybody else, okay? And so one of their famous things that they had was they had a gymnasium. And this is a picture of the gymnasium in Sardis. Um, and when we were there, there were some American um, ar uh, archaeologists archeologi uh, that, were, that were there doing some restoration work on it. You can see the scaffolding. Um, it was huge. It's one of the major um, restored places there in the, in the city of Sardis. Now, if you look at it, you're like, okay, you know, that's kind of cool. That's kind of old. It, it's hard to get a picture of how big this is. There's a picture of Brendan and I, they're standing there, and you're like, okay, that, that's kind of cool, but, but to give you per, some perspective on just how big it is, this is me, okay? So this thing's not just, this thing is like gigantic, right? And this was the gymnasium where all the people would come. Now, the gymnasium in the day, and I know, like, if you ever go into the parking lot over here, like, trying to go to Trader Joe's and all the people are at the gym, it gets crazy in that parking lot, right? Because everybody's around there, right? Seems like all of Newberry Park congregates there. That was this place, okay, in Sardis. Everyone went to the gym, okay? It wasn't just for working out. It was if uh, some new philosopher had something that he wanted to teach and he wanted to get up on his soapbox, where would he do it? At the gymnasium. If, um, if you wanted to get news and information in the day, you didn't go click on the TV, you went to the gymnasium. And everything, all of social life kind of gathered around this one area outside of here, kind of where, the, where it would be on our side, was called the Agora, it's kind of the marketplace of things. But the gymnasium in Sardis was the central gathering place. 
And they were super proud of it because their wrestlers would always beat everybody else and they touted this, okay? They touted this all over the place and they told people how great they were. Um, and so um, they flaunted this, their wealth, they flaunted their power and all of these other things and with that kind of storied history in mind, listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, starting in verse one, um, he says this, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, seven is a number of completion, seven is a number of fullness, um, especially in the book of Revelation and in other apocalyptic literature. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am coming fully at you. And he's saying the full, some of your Bibles might even say the, the sevenfold spirit, right? It means the fullness of the spirit of God is coming your direction and the seven stars, which were the seven, it's, if you go back to chapter one, it says the seven stars are the seven messengers. Okay, so he's got messengers that he's got this complete message that he's bringing to them. And, um, and when I was looking at this, I found this really great passage of scripture. You know, we're heading towards Christmas and the birth of Jesus. One of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, of the coming Jesus in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, uh, verse two and three, it said this, it says, the spirit of the Lord, okay, the spirit of the Lord rests upon him, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of fear, and he will delight in the fear of of the Lord. And there's seven different spirit things talked about there. So he's saying, hey, I'm bringing all of the wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and everything to bear on this and I'm bringing you this whole message and it's coming fully at you in the spirit of Jesus, right? And so, and then I love it, it says, and the fear of the Lord will be his delight. Well, for how many of you is the fear of the Lord a good thing because it, it keeps you straight? Amen. Right, we need a little bit of the fear of the Lord. Right, um, my dad made sure I had some of that. Okay, praise Jesus. So, this church is about to get a, a heavy dose of the fear of the Lord. So he starts off with this exhortation. He says, "I know your deeds," and we've heard that before. He goes, "I know what you guys are up to," and then he says, "I know your deeds. You have a reputation. They have a reputation of being alive, but you are what?" Yeah, your reputation, word on the street is you're alive, but you are really dead. And I gotta be honest with you, all I could think about when I, when I read that this week over and over again was anybody ever see Weekend at Bernie's? Right? How many of you saw that movie? Yeah, some of you? Um, it's a hilarious movie where these two young guys, they work for this guy named Bernie, and they think that they, their big goal in life is to get invited to one of the boss's big parties as his big river house and all this stuff and take advantage of all that the boss had to offer, right? And then they would be popular because they were hanging out with this guy who was super wealthy and super popular and everything else. They finally get invited and they show up at his house and when they get there, he's dead. Okay, so they're thinking party over, right? But instead, these ingenious guys, they decide to prop him up through the whole movie. It's like them propping up this dead guy so that they can take advantage of his wealth and of his popularity and everything else. And so it's kind of a crazy movie. And when I was thinking about it, it's like this, this place here in Sardis, Jesus saying, hey, your reputation is that you're alive, but man, I know. See, there's a term in our culture today called, that we sometimes say, fake it till you make it, right? Fake it till you make it. Well, the reality is, is you could fake it with some people. 
You can let your reputation be that you're alive, but you will never put one over on Jesus. Because you can never fake him out. He knows what's going on in your life. And really, what I, my prayer has been this whole week as we kind of dive into this, is that God would shake some things loose in us where we might let go of places where we fooled ourselves, where we've even faked ourselves into thinking we're just okay. And allow Jesus to help us realize that there are places in our life where we might think we're doing good, but we need to shore them up and realize that if we're not careful... Like Sardis, we could have a reputation for being alive but really be dead. Now, Croesus was famous for his, not just wealth and stuff, but for his um, cavalry. He had one of the largest cavalries in, in the world at that time. And so, and, and one of the bad things about Croesus is he believed his own press. He, he always thought he was really powerful when maybe sometimes he wasn't and but what he liked to do is he would go around and pick fights with these little kingdom areas and he would take his big cavalry out and he had all these thousands of horses and they would go out and pick on all of these smaller people until one day in um, 549 BC Croesus picks a fight with Cyrus the king of the Persians Okay. Now you might know who Cyrus is. Cyrus, if you're, if you're a Bible student, Cyrus was the one that um, after Nebuchadnezzar and stuff, they throw over Babylon and then, and then he releases the Jews to go back under Ezra and Nehemiah and they come back and they, to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. If you don't know that story, it's awesome stuff. Go read Ezra and Nehemiah. It's great, great Bible reading. Um, so Croesus, though, he's getting ready to go up to fight um, Cyrus um, of the Persians, and he, he goes to the Oracle of Delphi, as was his normal practice. And he goes to the Oracle of Delphi, who's kind of like a prophet or a kind of a, a you know, palm reader, or I don't know, some kind of crazy thing. And he goes to the Oracle and says, hey, if I go out and I fight Cyrus, am I going to win? And as usual, the, the Oracle gives him a very kind of encrypted, like weird, kind of vague message. And the Oracle says, if you go to battle a great nation will be defeated. Well, being a narcissistic king, he says, oh, well, I guess I'm gonna defeat this other nation, right? And so he just takes his uh, cavalry and he goes out to battle. Well, one of the things, and there's this historian, um, his name is Herodotus, and Herodotus writes these stories, and Herodotus tells us that um, Croesus's, uh, his, his uh, cavalry, the horses had never been around camels before. How many of you have ever been around a camel? Camels have a unique smell, okay? They're very pungent animals, right? And so the cavalry marches out to, to meet Cyrus, but Cyrus is using camels, and the horses don't know what to do. They've never seen this before, and all of their horses get spooked by these crazy camels. And so what happens is, is they aren't performing well, and, and um, Croesus' army gets defeated. They kind of put their tail between their legs, and they retreat back to home, to Sardis, and then they, um, they retreat into their fortress, which was on the Acropolis of Sardis. We have a picture of this. Their, their um, fortress is up on top of this giant hill that is all surrounded by these cliffs. 
And so it, it, it became known, one of the sayings in the area at the time was it's um, it, as impregnable as Sardis, right? In other words, something that's impossible is like trying to take Sardis. Well, if, as you can imagine, how is the army going to like get up that thing, right, to destroy this place? And so um, Croesus, he retreats back. He goes into the place thinking, okay, we're good. And he assumes that because he does that, that, um, that Cyrus is going to go back um, to his own country and kind of leave him alone, right? And then he can regroup. Well, Cyrus doesn't play that way. And so Cyrus comes and he encircles the whole Acropolis, Right, And he's just like lays siege to the city and he's going to wait him out. And then one day some of the, um, there's this great story from Herodotus and he says, he says one day as some of the best fighters were, were looking on to the, um, to the palace, um, they saw on the walls of the city a soldier who looked over the wall and his helmet fell off. And went tumbling down the cliffs, right? Well, a couple minutes later, they look and they see the guy and he's way down below the cliffs picking up his helmet. And then next thing you know, he's back up on the wall again with his helmet on. And so they go, hey, how did that guy, how'd that guy get there, right? Something, how, how, there must be a secret passageway. And so these guys in the evening, they crawl up there. And what they do is they, they crawl up one of these large kind of crevices. And what they discover is, is that there is a spot where the water during rain or whatever, the water had pulled up in a place and it had eroded some of the foundations of the wall. And there was a small opening, they said just small enough for a person to get through, but there's a small hole now because the foundation had been eroded. And they thought, well, hey, who can climb up the cliffs anyways and it's kind of serving a purpose as a drain, so let's just leave it alone right? Because who can climb our cliffs, okay? So what happens is, is that night, um, Cyrus sends kind of his Navy SEAL team, and they go up, and about six of them go up. They climb up through that, go through the little hole. They sneak through the city. They open the city gates, and Cyrus and the whole Persian army come in and totally devastate the city, right? And so it was all have the city. This city should never be taken except for the fact that these guys were asleep, at night, and they were depending on something, they, 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 they were kind of blind to their own blind spot, right? Well, that would, that would be enough, except for the fact that about 200 years later, almost the exact thing happens again, okay? Because Antiochus, who was leading one of the Greek armies, comes in, and he had heard this story from somebody, so they surround the whole thing, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. He sends one, some of his guys out, and he gives a reward. He offers a reward to whoever can find the way into the city. And this one guy, one guy, okay, under the cover of night, while everyone else is asleep in the city, he crawls through the place, finds the hole, and guess what? They hadn't fixed it. So he crawls through the hole, goes over the place, opens up the city gates, and the Greek army comes in and totally destroys the city, right? They, they capture the city. So if you think about it, um, so the, the, this next verse should not come as any surprise if you know the history, right? Because the next verse in verse 2 starts out with this, wake up! Wake up! He's like, you have been sleeping, and you know what's happened in your city? Everybody else thought that they were safe, but they were sleeping. You had a false sense of security, and because you were asleep, 
you were captured. And, and so he says this, he says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. What's interesting is the word there for unfinished, it can really mean in disrepair. Their foundation was in disrepair. They had a hole in their foundation. And because their foundation had a hole in it, the enemy was able to crawl right through that hole, open the doors for everything else, and the city was captured. Now, can you kind of see where the preacher's gonna go with all this? If we're not careful with the foundation that we have, and if we don't maintain the foundation of our faith well, if we just assume that everything's okay and that we've got enough to get by, or hey, I've got the, I might have this one little opening, but you know what, everything else is good, I can just have this one little thing, that that is the exact spot where the evil one is gonna enter the city and is gonna help be your undoing. And so Jesus comes to him and says, hey, Folks, what has lulled you into a false sense of security? And I gotta tell you, as I read this this week, I thought, this is the letter to us. If we're here living in Southern California, United States of America in 2019, don't we need to hear, hey, don't depend on your wealth. Don't depend on on your culture, your, your fashion sense. Don't, don't depend on the things that make you powerful and strong in the world's eyes. Don't, don't pay attention to all those things. Don't lull yourself into a false sense of security or false sense of complacency. Because let's get honest, it's easy for us to say, hey, we're putting our hope in other things that we have. For some of us, it might be financial security. I know a lot of people that that is what they're all about, is building the right financial security so that they think they're okay. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being wise, being good stewards, you know, being fiscally sound or, 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 or things like that. But when we put all of our hope in that, then that becomes a blind spot for us and it's a false sense of security. In 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 17, it says this. It says, command those who are rich in this present world. We've talked about this before. Who's rich in this present world? Anybody in the room willing to admit it? Yeah, it's us. Folks, if you travel around the world, it is us. Whether you think you are or not, it is us. We are the rich ones in the world today. So command those who are rich. So this is, you know, we're commanding, okay, not to be arrogant, like Croesus and the, you know, the people of Sardis were. Nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. He command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation, not one with a hole in it, for the coming age so that they can take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you want life that is really life? Or would you like some of the fake? Because I, I can help you find the fake really easy too. The fake is just go out there and fake it till you make it. Find, find what the rest of the world is depending on and go get some of that. But the reality is, is Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hope, and he says, not only for now, but for the coming age so that we can take hold of real life. You want real life? Take hold of Jesus. 
You think you're missing something in life? You think things are difficult in life right now? Take hold of Jesus. You think that it seems like, man, there's just a hole in your foundation? Take hold of Jesus. Jesus is what you need. Now, how is your foundation? Where is it that you're, where's your blind spot? See, one of the reasons that, that we want people to, to gather together in, in life groups, to, to be together and to study God's word and to encourage one another, to get to know each other and, and to really hold each other accountable is because every single one of us has a blind spot. And guess what? Here's the reality. Most of the time, you don't know where yours is. That's why it's called a blind spot. If you knew where it was, you might try to do something about it. But the reality is, you don't know what you don't know. And that's what we need to be together. We need to not just do this for ourselves. We need to do this for each other. And we need to make sure that we're taking care of one another so that we can take hold of the life that is truly life and point each other back in the direction of Jesus when we start to depend on other things. Where is it that you're vulnerable to attack? Satan doesn't need a wide open door. He's looking for a small hole in your foundation, a small place where he can sneak through. He's like a roaring lion, and he's just looking and sneaking around, waiting to find that one spot that he can pounce on you. And so this morning, one of the things that we have to hear is this, make sure that our foundation is solid. Make sure that our foundation is secure in the word of God. And help one another be able to repair the cracks in our foundations. So he goes on. He, he not only gives them a kind of a reputation check and say, hey, you know what? You're not as safe as you think you are. Then he gives them a warning in the second part in, in, in verse 3. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and hold fast to it and repent. Okay? Hold on to what you have received, what you have heard. And hold it fast and repent. So he's saying, so what have they received? What have they heard? The main message of the New Testament church, okay, uh, for the first 300 years at least, was all about the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have this, okay? They didn't have this. You know, it's like every time that the apostles and some of the church leaders would get arrested and they'd get thrown in prison, they'd get whipped and beaten and everything else for their faith, and then they would, you know, when it was time to let them go, the people would look at them and go, now don't you go out there and talk about that Jesus anymore. And they said almost the same thing every time. They said, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And Jesus is saying, what is it that you received? What is it that you've heard? You've heard the story of Jesus and his resurrection. So go out and talk about that, right? That's what you have to hold on to. Don't allow your faith to get mixed up in anything else. Focus on Jesus and focus on his resurrection, and that's what he's telling them to do. And then he goes on and he says in, in the second part of verse 3, he says, but if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You ever heard language like that before? This isn't the first time Jesus said this. Jesus said this back in Matthew chapter 24. When Jesus was still here on earth, he says this in Matthew 24, 42. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. 
But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. You know, we're here in the book of Revelation. Everyone's trying to figure out, when's Jesus coming back, right? Here's the reality. Jesus is coming back. Here's the other truth. Nobody knows when. If somebody tells you they know when, run. Okay? Because even here in the church, Jesus says, you aren't going to know. I don't care what you figure out about these books and everything else. You're not going to know exactly when this is going to happen. That's why Jesus says, just be ready. Just be ready. Be ready all the time because he could come back anytime. And Jesus says, look, you need to hold on to what you know. And what do you know? You know that Jesus died and was resurrected and he's coming back again. And so you hold on to that. And you make that the core of, your found, of the foundation of your faith. Now, he goes on. He warns this church. He says, hey, you've been asleep. You need to wake up. You were dead. You know, you're dead. You need to come back to life. You need to focus on this. And then he gives this. If you didn't notice, he, he did it backwards or he jumped into the exhortation really quick. And now he's going to give just this little bit of encouragement Okay, to the people. And in verse 4 he says this, yet, so here's what's happening, here's what's wrong, here's what you need to fix. And he says, yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Now, when, when, the, when, when the idea or the statement, they've soiled their clothes, comes to mind, what do you think of? The first service giggled too. I think you're all thinking the same thing, right? It's like somebody peed their pants, right? And I'm thinking if Jesus came to me and says, I know what you're doing, and man, your foundation's a mess, well, I, I might, you know, soil my clothes, right? So, but here's the reality, is he says, hey, some of you have not yet soiled your clothes. Now, remember we talked earlier about the whole, like, dying wool and everything like that? So this is really interesting when we were there. Um, I, I went back and looked at some of my notes in my journal that I kept. It was kind of interesting. Um, remember that a status symbol, okay, showing yourself to be kind of, you know, up in status in this area was to wear all the nicest dyed clothes. To be colorful was like you were wealthy, right? If you just had the basic clothing, then, you, you know, no big deal. But if you wanted to, like, show off, you wore these bright colored clothes. The best of the bright co colored clothes were made in Sardis. And what they would do, um, if you've ever seen um, virgin wool, okay, like a sheet of virgin wool that hasn't been touched before, um, it's, not all, it's not all just white, right? It has some little tan spots, some little darker spots, right? And things like that. It's not uniform. So in order to dye the colors so that the colors were uniform when they dyed the colors, what they had to do before they dyed them is they would bleach the virgin wool. It would not only make it all white so they had a plain white thing to dye so that it would be uniform in color, but it would also soften it up. So, and you know what they used? Because they couldn't just go to the store and buy a bottle of bleach. Do you know what they used to, dye, to, to um, bleach their, their fabrics? Urine. Yeah, urine. Okay? Um, 
what they would do, there's a, there's a um, picture of the, city, of the street coming into the city. So this is, the, this is where the street was. It came in the city. There's the gymnasium over in the background. This is the street that was coming into the city. And what they would do, now think about this. If you've been on the road for a long time and you finally get home, what's one of the first places you go? Right. So right here at the entrance to the city, there were these places and they would have these latrines and they would put out these, these bowls and then people were coming into the city, they would stop by the latrine and they would relieve themselves and they would urinate in these bowls. Then the people would take the urine, they would let it sit for a couple of days because after a couple of days, the urine would have a high concentration of ammonia. And they would take the ammonia and they would put them, see in the corner back over there, there's this little like place, this little, um, I don't know, basin. They would pour it in there and then they would shove all of this wool into the urine. And they would leave it there for a couple of days until the ammonia just worked itself out and it bleached all of this wool. Then they would pull it out, rinse it off, and hang it out to dry, right? Now, if they left it out long enough in the sun and everything else, it would kind of, hopefully, the stench would go away. Then they would put it through the dyeing process. It would have a uniform color, and that was the most expensive stuff, right? So the status was to wear clothes that were really brightly colored and the really brightly colored clothes have been soaked in urine, right? So it makes sense, doesn't it, when Jesus says, hey, there's some among you who haven't concerned yourself so much with the status that the world says that you need to have. There's some among you who haven't worried about all of this stuff and and having a false sense of security. There's some of you who've been focused on me. He says, and you? He says, those people will walk with me with white robes, okay? Because you didn't have to go through that process with the white robes. And and, and so Jesus is saying, hey, what what is it that you're holding on to to give you value? Is it your colorful clothing? Is it your fashion? Is it your money? What is it? What are the things you're holding on to? Then he goes on and he makes this promise to the people. He says, um, he says to the one who is victorious, I will, uh, like them, will be dressed in white and I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. But will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As he talks about this book of life, it's interesting. To be a citizen in the city of Sardis um, was a big deal. If you were from Sardis, that was, that was a big thing. But in order to be a citizen, you would have to have your name written in the city town ledger. There was a place by the gymnasium where you would go, and uh, if you had a child, you would come and register the child. Um, If you moved into town, you'd have to go and you would have to get your name put in the town ledger so that you could take advantage of everything the city had to offer. If not, um, if not, you, you, you couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't get into the gym. Okay, so think of it as your gym pass or whatever. You couldn't get into all these places, so you had to have your name written in the city's book. Now, there were two ways to have your name blotted out of the civic record, okay? And if you got your name blotted out, they, they just didn't really remember you, right? Um, the, the first is this. The first is failure to pledge your allegiance to the city and to Rome, okay, in the time that this was written. 
And so you would have to, we've talked about this before, you'd have to come once a year, you'd go to the civic center, you would offer up incense and you would say the words, Curious Caesar, Caesar is Lord, and then your name was good in the city books. Okay, Um, The only people that didn't have to do this was the Jewish people. They had somehow brokered this unique deal with Rome that said, hey, we don't worship other gods. We don't worship, you know, at all like this, so we're not going to do it. And I guess Rome thought, well, we don't want to have to just kill them all, so they gave them a pass. Well, right next to the um, gymnasium where all this was taking place was the largest Jewish synagogue outside of Jerusalem, okay? Um, it's very ornate. It's one of the largest, it is the largest Jewish synagogue outside of um, Jerusalem. Um, if you go to most synagogues, they are very plain. Usually just um, stone, um, undressed stone, because that's what God said. Um, this one is super fancy. And have you ever had, have you ever been to places that you see where somebody put a brick and their name is etched on it, right? Because they made a contribution. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those names written all over the floor of this place. And a lot of them are Greek names. So they weren't even just the Jewish people. In other words, these guys were getting along with the city really well. They had kind of slipped in their, in their worship of Yahweh too. See the big table down at the very far end? That was the Torah table. And the Torah table, um, typically if you go to Jerusalem, most of the Torah tables were fairly small. They were just a couple pieces of stone, undressed stone, and they would keep their copy of the Torah on there so that when people would come in, they would read, that's where they would read the Torah. This one, however, was quite large. I think we have a picture of, that's how big it is. And, And if you notice it, look at how ornate it is. It's not just a couple stones. The feet are lion's paws, and on the far side, it has the emblem of Rome, the eagle, on the two sides of this thing. So the Jewish people of Sardis had kind of slipped in their foundational truth of study in the Torah, and they've cozied up to the culture of Rome, and they're saying, hey, we're all good. We're buddies, right? And what happened was is the, the early Christians at one time were under kind of the covering of the Jews because the, they were seen as a kind of a Jewish sect. But then the Jews started reckoning because the Christians came along and started saying things like, hey, 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 it's not all about the, the Torah thing anyways. And by the way, you shouldn't be having a, a table that's all like, you know, graven images all over it. And they started speaking the name of Jesus who had been resurrected. And the Jews turned on the Christians and, and not only kicked them out of the synagogue, they turned them in to the Roman officials and the Roman officials would take them and say, hey, you have to pledge your allegiance to Caesar and to our city or you're out. Now think about if that was happening today, if somebody came up and said, hey, you've got to pledge your allegiance. You have to say the city of Thousand Oaks is Lord or I don't know what they would do. You have to pledge your allegiance there. And you're thinking to yourself, man, what, what, what would my decision be? Right? And if you refused to pledge your allegiance to the city and to Rome, they would blot your name out of the book. You were off the city roll and you had no advantages that the city had to offer. And Jesus says, hey, 
He says, look, the one who's victorious, the one that holds on there, he says, they will be dressed in white and I will never blot their name of that person out of the book of life. And he says, I will actually acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. And he says, hey, look, you might get your name blotted out of the city roll, but if you proclaim my name, if you say Jesus is Lord, then you don't have to hold on to all this stuff that you think is gonna give you a false sense of security. You don't need all this other stuff because he says, I've got your back. And I will never blot your name out. And the city that you're gonna be a citizen of one day in heaven, you will have everything you could possibly ever imagine. The second way to get your name off the city rolls to be blotted out of the city book was if you died. Once you died, they took your name out of the city roll. Well, because a dead person isn't very good for tax revenue anyways, right? <clears throat> so Jesus comes along and says, who are you gonna proclaim lordship to? And then he says, oh, and by the way, the other way that your name gets blotted out is if you die. And he says, if you come and call me Lord, he says, your name will never be blotted out, even in death. Because as Paul wrote in Romans, he says, who is the one who condemns? No one, he says. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, he was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he's intercessing, interceding for us. He says, so who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, they skip down to verse 87. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any power, not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus looks at us and says these words from Matthew, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowned me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. See, Jesus is asking this question, what things are giving you a false sense of security? Because security, real security, for not just this life, but for eternity, is found in only one name. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you have never placed your allegiance to that name, if you've never said that Jesus is Lord, then I want to invite you to do that today. And while we're having a time of communion, while we're seeing it, I, I just encourage you, come and talk to me. I'm going to ask any of our elders who are here to just kind of sit over here on the sides. And if you need to talk to somebody about what that looks like, what that means, then we're here for you because you know what? We don't want you to have to hold on to the things of the world. They're all going away anyways. But there is truth and there is hope and there is eternal life in Jesus. And we don't want to wash our robes in what the world has to offer. There is only one thing. Throughout the book of Revelation, there is one thing that cleanses your robes white. And you know what it is? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. And every week we celebrate this. 
I mean, come on, to, to the people on the outside, doesn't it sound kind of crazy, this communion thing where we look at it and go, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna, to like, take the bread that represents Jesus' broken body and we're going to take the cup and it represents Jesus' blood and we're going to celebrate that? The reason that we do is exactly what we've read today is because Jesus died on our behalf to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We don't wash our clothes the way the rest of the world does. We don't depend on the things that the world does. We don't find security in the way that the world does. We find hope. We find security. We find true peace true love in the name that is above every name and it's the name of Jesus who died on the cross on our behalf and brings us hope and if you need that kind of hope today reach out for Jesus if you've been putting your hope in other things set them aside and reach out for Jesus if you're hurting and broken this morning and you've just realized that man I've got all this stuff in life that's a man reach out to Jesus He's there for you, and he loves you. And he proved that on the cross. So reflect on that as we take communion. And if you need to talk to someone this morning, would love to share with you how to make Jesus Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you're good. Your mercy is amazing, Father. Thank you, thank you for putting up with us when we chase after so many other things that we try to find security in. Where, God, we misplace our hope into the things of this world. And, Father, we come to you this morning and acknowledge that, Lord, we're, we're just, we're lost without you. That, Father, we, we try to disguise the hurts and pains with things of the world. But, Lord, we recognize that the only true way to find hope is to be cleansed through the blood of Jesus. Father, so we come to you and thank you this morning. Thank you for allowing Jesus to make the sacrifice on our behalf to save us and to cleanse us so we could be your children. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.